Welcome to Charlotte Reader's Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show that features stories and poems by local and regional authors, the kinds that touch the emotions, followed by conversations that offer depth and insight into the readings and writing lives of the authors. We record this show in the well-equipped podcast studio at Advent Coworking, located right here in the Belmont community near Uptown Charlotte. Support for Charlotte Reader's Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, conveniently located in Park Road Shopping Center. And by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. For more information about these book-minded sponsors who help authors give voice to their written words, please visit them online at parkroadbooks.com and cmlibrary.org or drop by the bookstore or any library branch. Support is also provided by members like you, and for that, we offer our gratitude along with some awesome member-only content. You can find out more about these member benefits at charlottereaderspodcast.com. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the stories. I'm your host, Landis Wade. Thank you for listening. In today's episode, we meet George Hovis, author of The Skin Artist, an edgy story set in the shadows of the shiny banking city we know as Charlotte, North Carolina. Fred Chappell, author and winner of the North Carolina Award for Literature, says that Hovis displays a world we know and try to turn our gaze from. But the story is too powerful, and we readers watch, hypnotized, as the descent gathers friends, lovers, and family into its vortex. Can such dark passages lead to hope? George starts the show with a reading early in the book, where the main character ends up at a historic Charlotte bar after learning that his wife is having an affair, and he sees Lucy for the first time, a woman covered in tattoos with jet black hair down to her back. Many city miles later, at a hole in the wall called the Double Door Inn, he eased the Mercedes into a space beside a row of Harleys, their chrome reflecting neon light from the beer signs that crowded the windows. Inside, he squeezed his way through bodies lining one long hall, pool tables in the rear, a bar near a makeshift stage. Between songs, a band tuned their guitars. The slapback bass thumped so loud Bill could feel it against his body. He watched a woman across the club at the pinball machine, covered in tattoos, jet black hair down her back. Every time she slapped the flipper buttons, that mane swung like a pendulum. True grits and biker boots and frayed denim vests. Bankers in black t-shirts faking it. And Bill, in his suit and tie, one of the roughs. On the dance floor, an old sober couple in gray pigtails boogie-woogieing. The band invited other dancers to join them, but apparently the crowd was waiting for a state of deeper intoxication. Bill waited with them. He drank three draft Heinekens and a shot of Pepe while the dance floor slowly filled. One acrobatic couple cleared a space in the middle. Swing, that was the craze. Bill watched the tattooed woman make her way over to the swingers and then began swaying her hips. Black mini skirt, ink of every color blanketed the pale skin of her legs and the arms she held loosely above her head. Everybody in the house watched her dance, even if they tried not to. She moved with the grace of a snake, dark eyes darkened by heavy mascara, 
Her aquiline nose was maybe too large for some, but not for Bill. He liked a woman with a nose. He liked the way she moved her hips, which helped him to stop thinking about his wife and how the thick bristles of Anthony's mustache might feel against every part of her body. So long as he kept his eyes on this dancer, Bill found that he could forget the intimacy he had watched develop between Maddie and their neighbor over pie and coffee. When they thought, nobody was watching. George Hovis is a native of Gaston County, North Carolina. Before becoming a writer and teacher, he worked as a process chemist at several ink factories in Charlotte. His debut novel, The Skin Artist, from SFK Press, and his stories and essays have appeared widely, most recently in the Carolina Quarterly, The Fourth River, and North Carolina Literary Review. A Pushcart Prize nominee and former president of the Thomas Wolfe Society, he earned a PhD from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and has attended the Sewanee Writers Conference. His monograph, Veil of Humility, Plain Folk and Contemporary North Carolina Fiction, was published in 2007 by University of South Carolina Press. He currently lives with his wife and their two children in upstate New York, where he is a professor of English at SUNY Oneonta. Host Landis Wade is committed to making this podcast worth your time. He's a recovering trial lawyer, award-winning author, book and dog lover, whose laid-back style encourages authors to read and talk about their published and emerging works. You can listen to this show for free at charlottereaderspodcast.com or at Charlotte Mecklenburg Library's Digital Branch website. And you can subscribe and listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Show notes of this episode with images, links, and information about the authors are available at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. George, welcome to the show. Thank you, Landis. Great to be here. I'm a big fan. Yeah, well, so how did you, uh, you know, you're now in New York, but you have local roots, Gaston County, mm-hmm. right? And Charlotte, right? Mm-hmm. Welcome home. Thank you. Good yeah. to be here. To a home that probably looks nothing like it did when you lived here, right? Well, you know, Charlotte, to <laughs> mm-hmm. me, the look of Charlotte is just constant growth, so it's pretty familiar. Yeah, well, yeah. in that respect, yes, it's uh, it's constantly changing. So if you are if you recognize that, then you recognize Charlotte. That's right, right. Yeah. yeah. But now, when you were here, and I noticed this when I was reading the book, it actually threw me off because I said, wait a minute, it's not called Nations Bank. That's right. You know, and I read a little bit more, and then I saw the reference to the Double Door Inn. I said, oh, the Double Door Inn's gone. Right. So I started thinking, oh, no, okay, now I know. He set this back in the 90s, right? I think Bill is the only person in the book with a cell phone, too. Yeah, and I I picked up on that. But I I think I I saw Nations Bank first, and I was like, wait a minute. He didn't even know that Bank of America is here now. And then I said, oh, yeah, he does. He's got yeah. a, he just wanted to set. Why did you choose to set it then? Because you wanted to go back to some of those um, iconic places? That's part of it. But mm-hmm. That's the Charlotte I know best. So I worked in Charlotte uh, in the 90s, as you mentioned, at the ink factories. And I lived in Gaston County at the time. So I commuted to Charlotte and also commuted to Charlotte on the weekends to go out and hear live music, search for a good time. Uh and so, the, yeah, that's the Charlotte I know and, and remember and sort of wanted to capture in a little time capsule in this novel. So you grew up in Gaston County? Where in Gaston County? 
I grew up in certified country, certified uh, country. two miles outside of any yeah. town, yeah. outside of a little mill town called Stanley. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. was originally called Stanley Creek. And, and this thing, you know, mentioned in your bio, you worked at these ink factories. I'm not sure I know what an yeah. ink factory is. Well, I know I need ink for my printer. <laughs> for my printer and, right. <laughs> well, if you, you know, you go in the grocery store and yeah. you're staring at tons of ink on all of those beautiful, colorful packages, that's what I help manufacture, packaging inks. Mm. And it was also, it was always very important to get the, the hugest right uh, and um, to manufacture as much ink as cheaply, as efficiently as possible. That was my job. So did working in this ink factory, did it introduce you to this world of tattooing (laughs) (laughs) well maybe indirectly i think that's probably where ink first entered my subconscious yeah uh you know did y'all make ink for any tattoo no (laughs) not to my knowledge no that wasn't what y'all were known for. no yeah yeah yeah. where do they get their ink i don't know do you know is it the ink for tattoos where does it come from oh boy you know Mm. you're gonna ask me all of these technical questions about tattooing and i'm gonna fail the quiz (laughs) i know well you should know that (laughs) just roll up your sleeves and tell us that's right what what color what color you got so anyway all right well look we'll we'll, we'll defer that for a moment let's talk about this underbelly of charlotte because uh i had this introduction you know the shiny city you know on a hill kind of thing where we got these tall buildings and you you allude to that but you do it metaphorically a lot of times in your novel the the skin artist but you, you take us in this book to this, you know, almost like underground Charlotte. You know, yeah. it's a different Charlotte mm-hmm. uh, than most people in, in suits and button downs inhabit. What was it that, uh, that drew you to, to write about this sort of alternative reality that's Charlotte, North Carolina? Um, probably that old time religion. You know, it's probably the sort of the Puritan consciousness in me that. Uh, always tends to look beneath the happy surface for some source of suffering. And people are suffering everywhere, I think. And people are tempted everywhere. So the tattoo parlor, I visited a a number of tattoo parlors, and the one in my book is very much a composite of those places. Um, And some of the other places like the jackpot, the strip club that Lucy works at, that... uh, bill frequents um that's not based on any one place i kind of did have in mind the paper doll lounge even though Mm. i never frequented the paper doll (laughs) while i worked in charlotte (laughs) i passed its uh, alluring doors many times and and kept going on by um but yeah and the the double door and certainly a place that i went to very often yeah we're going to talk about setting in just a second uh before i get there though Bill Becker, um, he's the protagonist, or at least one of them. You've got several. You know, I'd say Lucy is probably a protagonist as well. You start pulling for her through the book, too. But he's a man who's lost at the outset of the book. He's in your opening read. Um, His wife's having an affair. He sees this woman who has this sort of magical, addictive quality to Mm -hmm. her, and he's drawn in like he's inhaling some kind of drug, right? Yeah, that's a fair way to put it. Yeah, Yeah. thanks. Yeah. And... and, um, 
and then it just kind of <laughs> goes from right. there. Right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he goes on a bender. He wakes up. That's he right. He doesn't know what's happening. He looks down, and by gosh, he's got a tattoo. Yeah. That's exactly right. Half finish. <laughs> butterfly on his chest. <laughs> Half finish. He decides to go for it. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, what caused you to relate to Bill, to have him be the center of this story, this spiral out of control story here? Um, you know, that's a really good question. I would say in looking back to a period of my life in my 20s, um, you know, it was a period where I was in flux, and I never suffered the kind of addictions that Bill suffers with, but I knew enough about them to extrapolate. Um, And I also wanted to explore this dark world that he finds his way through. The epigraph of the novel comes from Dante, from the um, fifth canto, which is devoted to that circle of hell inhabited by carnal sinners. And Bill is passing through, I think, a circle of hell not unlike that one. Yeah, I was drawn into that. Dante... Uh, from the Inferno, I had come into a place mute of all light that bellows as the sea does in a tempest. The infernal hurricane that never rests carries along the spirits in its rapine. Hither, thither, down, up it carries them. No hope ever comforts them, not of repose, not even of less pain. That's right. (laughs) And those are sinners who in their earthly existence were unable to restrain themselves from the fruits of carnal desire. Mm. So, we're, we're all yeah. sinners, but we don't all want a tattoo, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but you got to be careful if you're a sinner, what you end up <laughs> right. right. Bill ends up with a few. <laughs> yeah, and, and that happens throughout the book. But uh, Okay, so um, I want to talk about the book cover before we talk about setting, because I looked at this cover and I was drawn in right away. Did you have some say in this cover? Did you... The uh, cover designer, very talented artist, Olivia Croom, designed this cover, and she proposed four different ideas. This one struck everyone who looked at it. Uh, yeah, and so know. we're on radio or audio, or what do you want to call this thing we do, and they can't see what we're looking at here, but give them, give them a little flavor for what we're looking at. It is a photograph of the sort of knee down of a pair of tattooed legs, and it's funny, all of the women who see this cover say, I love those shoes. Well, I was going to, I was, gonna com- <laughs> right. I was, I was actually going to comment on the shoes. They have double straps, right? Mm-hmm. And, they and, look uh, like they could be a dancer's shoes. They, they yeah. stand up to some punishment. They've I got, think. they've got some heel on it. Her legs are crossed and her hands, you can only see, uh, you can't even see the top of her knee that's crossed over her lower leg, but you can see the hands on each side that are placed almost perched with the thumbs out and the fingers straight as if she's sitting up and looking straight at the camera. That's right. Yeah, Yeah. isn't that funny? Yeah. 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 You can guess what's (laughs) above the knees based on what's below. Yeah. Yeah. And the hands. Yeah, sort of uh, hypnotizing a little bit there. And on her lower leg, which her top leg is sitting across, there is a tattoo. That's right? right. How would you describe that? It's a nude female with flowing black hair and the word cursed in a scroll wrapping around her thighs. 
And it looks like she is emerging from a forest or some, I don't know, jungle growth that tries to entrap her. And I wondered if the cover designer chose this image because it suggests the tattoo that appears on Lucy's back, which is a portrait of the fall of man, Adam Mm. and Eve, standing beneath the tree of knowledge, both together reaching for the forbidden fruit. So this looks a little bit like the damned first mother. Uh, I'm not sure, but maybe. Well, it, 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 you know, they say you can judge a book by its cover, and uh, your cover does your, your prose justice, and it does pull you in uh, right and away. And also on the cover are these words, dark, sexy, and compulsively readable, Lee Smith. I was very happy to have yeah, that. Yeah, how about that? You always, you always yeah. like to have those Lee, right. <laughs> those blurbs that say dark, sexy, and compulsively readable. Right. <laughs> you won't find those in my Christmas books. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, all right, setting for a moment. Um People who've lived in Charlotte for years and people who are coming to Charlotte, I think, would find interest in what you do here. Of course, we started out with the Double Door Inn. Mm-hmm. used to be right there on Independence Boulevard across from Central Piedmont Community College. They bulldozed it in the name of progress. Oh, right? boy. Yeah. Sad. Yeah. But you go to other places, too. The old Charlotte Coliseum, which is called the Bojangles. And you, I think you describe it kind of a— and when I saw this image you used, I, I was taken with it, sort of like a flying saucer. Flying saucer, which is how it always looked to yeah, me. above the trees. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like it's setting down there. Yeah. Sort of futuristic architecture. And then you go to the Cajun Queen uh, one night, and you go on the Billy Graham Parkway, which you're going to read about. Uh, you talked about the jackpot, an invented location, not the Paper Doll Lounge, not that George Ovis has ever been to the Paper Doll Lounge. <laughs> <laughs> and then you got Lake Norman, which you described right. as Charlotte's Inland Sea. So. For people who live in Charlotte, it's it's uh, they are familiar locations, but what's but the unfamiliar is going to draw them into this too, right? Because you're going to take them to places maybe they thought they knew in Charlotte, that's right, but they don't really. Yes, know. yes, yeah. yes. Okay, so you also bring in a rural setting, the world down the road from Charlotte, with trees and trailers, right, and small homes, mm-hmm. right? and you kind of juxtapose the two, right? Throughout. The two settings are very much in competition with each other, and mm-hmm. Bill Becker, the protagonist, feels torn between the two, back the countryside in Gaston County where he grew up, and he's um, estranged from his family there. He's sort of living large in the city, and part of um, a big part of his problems comes from his estrangement from his family and mm-hmm. his extended family and his roots back in the country. <laughs> It's almost like, you know, he left the farm. He's the prodigal son. He's gone to the big city. That's right. You know, and, and when he comes home, he's never quite accepted. And there's a brother in the picture too, right? Yes, yes. He could be the favorite brother That's in, right. in the story. <laughs> Absolutely. I think there are heavy echoes of the prodigal son yeah, tale. Yeah. yeah, okay. Okay, so we've got another read here. You want to set this up just quickly? Yeah, yeah. So this is Bill when his life in the city is totally unraveling. All his credit cards are maxed out. His wife has kicked him out of the house. His new girlfriend, Lucy, is giving him the cold shoulder. He's lost his job and any prospects of a job, and he's about to go where we go when we have nowhere else to turn, and that is home. Up ahead, he saw the exit for Billy Graham Parkway, and the hymns cranked up in his head. Precious Lord, take my hand. Lead me on, help me stand. He turned on his car stereo, punched the buttons until he found a wailing guitar. 
and still the pressure of the pipe organ built in his brain. He gritted his teeth, stomped the gas, but at the last minute his foot dropped from the pedal and he felt the Mercedes changing lanes gliding off to the right. So he answered the altar call. He rode the Billy Graham Parkway to I-85, then flowed with traffic heading west. He stayed in the passing lane and listened to the engine hum. The nation's bank tower haunted his rear view. In the waves of heat rising from pavement, uptown flickered in the distance. How long would it take nation's bank to erect a second tower for them to finance a third, a tenth, a hundredth skyscraper. Total metastasis. The bull couldn't run forever. There would come a reckoning yet. Bathed in neon, it was easy to believe yourself free, to live for the moment. But he was headed toward a very different landscape. Mill houses covered in vinyl siding, tall chimneys standing alone in fields decades after the home place burned. The ghost of pig shit owned the wind years after the sty succumbed to a sea of kudzu, everywhere reminders of past generations and their claims on you. At the water's edge, he left Charlotte's outer limits, crossing over the wide muddy river that flowed between a world-class city and the hinterlands. Every night of the week in some comedy club downtown, an asshole on tour filled in the blank of his generic redneck jokes with the name of Bill's family's county seat, even though a fair portion of charlatans had grown up in Gaston County and had fled across the river in the middle of the night. They had fled under cover of darkness from some hick town and its collection of textile villages, fled across the river looking back over their shoulders until they made it to the safety of a cul-de-sac in some cookie-cutter housing development with a name like Heather Downs or Oakwood or Eagles Point, where they were so sure that their lives must be larger now. George, I don't know how many times um, I have been on the Billy Graham Parkway, but it's been quite a few. So when I saw this passage, I thought, (laughs) okay, up ahead he saw the eggs for Billy Graham Parkway. And I've been down I-85 to Gastonia. Oh, that's right. Oh, good, good. (laughs) Yeah, so we take that. But I kind of pass it, and we go on up 321 to head to the mountains to go go fly fishing and all that good stuff. Yeah. But, uh, you know, you use this, uh, you you focus on Nations Bank, which um, haunted Bill in his rearview mirror. And, and, And that tower haunts him, but it also sort of stands for a haunting of, of many of the characters in the mm-hmm. book, right? And you, yes. what, what does that tower represent to you in this novel? Well, I think for me, similar to what it represents for Bill, it is both a promise of a larger life and a threat of obliterating an old one. You mentioned earlier the demise of the Double Door Inn and a number of other Charlotte structures. And Charlotte is notorious for leveling historic structures that might impede <laughs> progress. Yeah, we better be careful where we're sitting. There might be a bulldozer coming through. Right, that's right. Because <laughs> we're, we're in our covering area here in, in the Belmont community, right? Yeah. Right, right. Uh, in an old building that's been repurposed and all that good stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah but you're right. It's um, When I grew up in Charlotte, uh, 
NCMB was known as the best bank in the neighborhood, you know? Yeah. yeah that was it. That's right. right. They were a neighborhood bank, you know? And now, look, I mean, they're dominating the sky here and uh, across across the country. You see that in the rearview mirror, but looking forward, he's headed toward, as you say, a very different landscape. Mill houses yeah. covered in vinyl siding, tall chimneys standing alone in fields decades after the home place burned. You can still see these places mm-hmm. if you look carefully as you're riding down I-85, but in particular if you cut off and take right. some of the side roads, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, when I grew up, um, I, I grew up out, out in the country, and I was fascinated by old structures and old home places that were abandoned, and I loved to come upon them and wander inside and see what was still there, uh, often log structures. Um, and their endurance, even when their inhabitants had fled, fascinated me. All right, George, we got a read now that involves um, tattooing and a couple of scenes here. Talk about the characters that are in these scenes. So this is Bill's second tattoo. He's back in the tattoo parlor with Niall. Who the, is the one the where artist. he's conscious when he gets attacked. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and um, Niall is one of my favorite characters in the book. He is part artist, part shaman, part philosopher. He is constantly talking to his clients while he tattoos them, which is one of the things that keeps Bill coming back. Niall talks about the history of tattoos. Uh, or his theories about alien takeover, or his theories about tantric sexuality, and Bill is entranced by Niall's talk. And much of this passage is Bill in the chair getting a tattoo on his forearm, this time of a carrot, uh, a root, and Niall chattering away. Take it away. The needles burned. Maybe it was better not to try and make conversation, just get this over with. I never knew tattooing went so far back, Bill said. At one point in history, Niles said, guiding the needle back along the heavy line, tattooing was taken very seriously, as well it should be, because it's strong magic and not simply about looking good at the club. But few artists these days are practicing magic, at least not consciously. There are very few human beings left who practice magic, as long as you don't count crap like Wicca, which isn't magic. It's just mass-produced garbage designed to elevate somebody to the top of a social circle. More like Hollywood. If anybody in Wicca or one of its New Age spin-offs knows anything at all, it's only the people at the very top. The people in covens are nothing but pawns and workhorses and batteries to draw power off of when need be, and then be chucked when they're no longer needed. Bill forced a laugh. Wicca sounds a lot like corporate America. Thousands of years ago in early mystical cultures, Niall said, they all believed the same things. There are certain marks you don't make unless you're ready to move mountains. And with tattooing, you're breaking the skin. I can use magic to help or hinder people to whatever extent I want. The skin is a protective barrier in every way. When you start cutting into the skin, you can do ten times the magic work in half the time. Bill looked again at the spreading blood. 
So, what if the tattooist is just some greaseball named Porkchop who specializes in rebel flags and Harley Davidson emblems? Niall added. It still has an effect? Of course it does. Even if the artist isn't actively engaging in a ritual at the time, it still can act on a metaphysical plane and alter somebody's reality for good or bad. But with less predictability? Usually the result is utter chaos. I'm very careful in my work, and even I have accidentally ruined lives. And sometimes not accidentally. Niall launched into a history lesson about ancient traditions of tattooing, and Bill lost track. They didn't start bleeding from the hands, Niall said, unless you're just reading King James. If you read the Greek and Hebrew, they merely tattooed themselves. Stigmata is a political mistranslation of tattoo. The early followers of Christ would tattoo themselves with significant imagery because they were being hunted down like dogs. Back then, no one would have dreamed of tattooing a religious image on himself that he didn't believe in. So, George, as I ask this next question, I have to uh, tell you that I, I keep reminding myself, now don't call him Bill. Don't call him. <laughs> yeah, don't call <laughs> don't, me Bill. Don't, don't call him Bill. Just call him George. Uh, that's his name, even though he's written this book about Bill. But you do have a tattoo, right? I do. I have yeah. one. Yeah. which I got the week after The Skin Artist was published. All right, and had, so you must have had some choices to make, right? I did. You know, <laughs> For anyone going through that, it's, it's excruciating. Yeah. Um, did you walk in and look at what's on the wall, or did you have a, an idea going into it? You know, it's funny. You know, with a history of tattooing, once upon a time, that's how it was done. You would go in and select a, it's called a flash tattoo off the wall from one of the choices there. But these days... Uh, as my artist explained it, everyone wants to be an original or, or think they're original. So they go online and pick something they think only they have ever seen, which, of course, is not true, uh, you, which is what I did. But you've got to have a certain level of trust. I mean, because these yeah. people can't really make a mistake and then use white out to That's take, right. take care of the problem. That's right. right. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's something that uh, you, you really... Uh, I mean, you describe it here. The needles, did it burn when they did it? It did. Yeah. So I was what, what does that feel I like? was <laughs> relieved that the process, as I described it in the book, based on research, turned out to be how I experienced it. Now, now why, so a lot of times authors might do some research ahead of time and then write their book. You weren't about to get the tattoo first and then write the book? I, mean, I thought about <laughs> it, but I But then you thought, well, maybe the delayed. book won't get published and what, right? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you never know. Yeah. But but so you, you kind of, you must have done some research about uh, tattoos to come up with the, the, the segment you just read, particularly uh, st yeah. stigmata, right? And mostly just talking to lots of people with tattoos and a number of artists, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then you leave us with some... Uh, and also some online and bookish yeah. research. Yeah. Symbolism here, Wicca sounds a lot like corporate America. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mass-produced, uh, yeah, okay. Well, that's the uh, world we live in, right? Yeah. It's all of these global entities that try to suck up the individual energy and use them for the corporate purpose. Um, and I'm not maybe as hostile toward... Uh, corporate entities as some people, probably not as much so as the artist in this book, but mm -hmm. I, th I think he does make a compelling case. All right, listeners. Well, when we come back, uh, we're going to find out more about why Bill Becker becomes obsessed uh, with a stripper who has a story of her own. We're going to talk more about Lucy, 
the character you see on the cover of the skin artist. I'll have a couple more reads there. We're going to do the writing life segment. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, writing about Charlotte, and we got a final read as well, so please stay with us. Hey, listeners, I'm here with Fabi Pressler, owner of Spark Publications, an independent publishing company that helps business owners and corporate professionals to tell their stories while sharing their knowledge. And today we're talking about process. Fabi, what's the first step in the process for someone who wants to try to find out if they want to work with Spark Publications? We have a really quick video introduction, and then we just dive into a strategy session where we really dig in and discover the audience, the vision for the business, the personal long-term goals for the book that, in order to exist. And many of your clients have not ever written a book before, right? That's true. We yeah. get them in on step one, and um, we teach them processes to help them write their manuscript from the mind dump to a table of contents to that 30,000th word and back you know, back cover copy, and then to the few rounds of editing, rewrites, and then the fabulous design process. So you're, you're kind of serving as sort of a concept uh, editor at the outset, helping the, the would-be author visualize how they want to tell their story? Everything from the strategy to the writing to the editing and the, the design and then to the distribution and marketing, mm-hmm. yes. Okay, so step one, let's, you go to the website, you see a video, you find out, then you you sign up for a strategy session, you talk through it, and then uh, and then the real work begins, right? The real work begins, and it is fun. <laughs> Are you saying writing is fun? <laughs> I didn't say that. I just said the whole process is fun. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, uh, if people want to find out more about how to work with, uh, with you, how do they do that? Go to sparkpublications.com or send me an email directly at info at sparkpublications.com, and we'll get the process started. We're back with George Hovis, author of The Skin Artist. Uh, George, I didn't ask you before. I'm going to ask you now. What, uh, what do the tattoos mean to Lucy? I think they are part of her endurance in a way. Uh, they help her process her life, and they help her move on to another day. And Bill? I know what the first one meant, nothing, because he was unconscious. <laughs> That's right. Although, ironically, it, it probably is the most, uh, you know, obvious tattoo of them all, the butterfly, the sort of transformation. It's uh, a period in his life when he's going through a very uh, dramatic transformation. Also, mm-hmm. transformation from country mouse to city mouse. Yeah, and he goes back and he gets that second one, and I'm wondering in part... He's trying to get closer to Lucy, so he's trying to understand her better. He goes back to the tattoo parlor, meets Niall. You had that read about yeah, yeah. Niall. But he gets this carrot, and the carrot is mm-hmm. sort of way up on his neck. And Well, that one's on his forearm, but the third oh, one is, is a, a rose the rose with a it, serpent coiled around the Which is the one that, that they saw when he was doing the interview. Is that the one? On That's the on his neck. So he's doing this yes. interview, and he's, he's trying to get this job because he lost his job, and everything's going great until... Somebody in a uh, suit sitting across the table notices something on his yeah. neck. Tattoos first entered my consciousness in the 90s in Charlotte when I was going out to the Double Door Inn as a groupie for this band called the Belmont Playboys, these guys from my high school, a rockabilly act. And I watched them cover themselves with tattoos with each concert. And I remember when Mike Hendricks came onto stage with a tattoo on his neck, and I thought, my God. <laughs> you know, so yeah. that's where that one comes from. And, and so talk about, you know, you mentioned the word stigmata earlier, but 
I guess a shortened version of that is stigma, right? Yeah, and so that's right. Talk about the stigma of tattoos as well. You, you kind of explored that a little bit in this book. Yeah. Well, certainly in the 90s, they were very much stigmatized. Um, and one of the subjects of the novel is this collision of Charlotte and the boom years, the 90s, the time when it finally gets the two sports franchises. It really declares itself a global banking superpower. It's coming into its own. And at the same time, the sort of counterculture of tattooing is entering the mainstream. And, and the two collide in this story. Hmm. All right, so let's go to a um, – it, it could be one of these uh, dive hotels on North Tryon Street. I'm not sure that's This right. one actually is a very nice oh, it is? hotel. Okay. It's okay. called the Ambassador Suites. Oh, okay. Well, not uh, the Embassy Suites, but maybe it resembles that it one did, in it, certain ways. The way it came across in the book. Um, There's you, another hotel in the book called the Hornet's Nest. Okay. It's a dive, but this okay. is the fancy one that he takes his new girlfriend to. Okay, and so you got yeah. a scene here where he's with Lucy, and I'd like you to... Uh, and uh, Just to set it up, sure. they're standing outside their penthouse suite on the eighth floor, looking over the balcony down to the courtyard below. And just to set it up further, this, if you want to call it a relationship, starts out as a economic transaction, right? Um, mm. I, I don't think either of the characters wants to confront fully th that fact. They try to distract themselves from that fact, but yeah. But, but money but is they, changing hands. Absolutely. Yeah. And the pretense is Bill's helping her out with her rent. He's uh, helping her get her car repaired. Mm. Uh, but yes, money and is changing And she's helping him hands. out with sex. Yeah. 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 All right. he's, he's sort of lost touch with this, mm. uh, this part of himself. And not he's just sex, but also he's looking for... He's someone, desperate for intimacy. Right, to, to someone to connect with. Yeah. Right, and he's, I would say he, he definitely very much falls in love with Lucy. Bill pulled Lucy tighter and felt himself stiffen against her. You make me feel holy. I ain't never heard it put that way before, she said. I feel like I could tell you anything, he said. Why? Because I'm a freak? No, no, he said. You're not a freak. I'm the freak. Remember, it's my turn. She laughed and fed him a potato chip. He spat it onto the carpet and went for her fingers. She laughed again and crumpled the empty bag and tossed it at his face. He kept chomping at her fingers, at her hair, her nose. He would gobble her up. What you said, her face went blank. You know, I feel like I could tell you things. I could tell you things. I'm serious. You seem like somebody who'd be a good listener. Yep, that's me. My mama taught me manners. I'm a very good listener. He brought his face down to hers, and she stepped back. You want to hear something? She shook a cigarette out of her pack and stood there with it between her lips. About when I was a kid? Yes, tell me about your girlhood. He moved in close again, brought his mouth down to hers. Feed me the words, he whispered. And she removed the unlit cigarette and opened her mouth to let him inside. After a moment's reluctance, she stroked his tongue with her tongue. So soft to be let inside her like this, here by the railing, in public. Flannel soft and soft under the flannel. 
He backed her against the railing and pressed himself into her. Even as the housekeeper in her uniform pushed the cart of towels past them, he kept kissing her. When the woman had gone, he stepped back to look at Lucy, still holding her hands, the gurgling of the fountain, the calypso music floating up eight floors from the courtyard, steel drums, the quality of light filtering down from on high, the smell of this woman, all elements magically balanced. I'm sorry, he said. You were going to tell me a story. What? From your childhood? It ain't nothing. No, you had something to tell me. I want to hear it. She lit the cigarette she was still holding. Maybe another time. Somebody official-looking from the hotel was rounding the mezzanine in their direction, and Lucy palmed her smoke. Come on, she said. I'm tired of being on display. Now, Lucy says she's tired of being on display, but she's on display every night when, she, da- right. she, when she dances, right? Yeah. That's yeah. how she's making a living. And, yeah, that, that line, I think, is mm-hmm. intended to echo her, yeah. her profession and how it's, it's wearing on her. But this uh, this scene, uh, of course, you know, Bill's got one thing on his mind. She's trying to open up and talk to him about a secret, which I sort of alluded to at the outset of the yeah. podcast. She's got a secret, too, and uh, he's not listening. Yeah, that's right. Bill's doing a terrible job of listening in this scene. Uh, and Lucy's secret, we learn shortly hereafter, is that she is a rape survivor, has been for half her life. Um And a big part of the suspense of the novel has to do with whether or not she is going to find someone to listen to her story, and also whether or not Bill can get over his own sort of downward spiral in order to do that, to be that person, whether he can transition from aging party boy to serve as Lucy's ally. If he's going to do that, he has to see how his desire for her, his obsession with her, is complicit in her suffering. And uh, in order to love her more deeply, he has to overcome his obsession. So is this a little bit uh, symbolic of certain underrepresented groups in society uh, not being heard, uh, not, you know, when they speak up, nobody's yeah. listening? Well, you know... Uh, this is a book that gestated for a long time, and I pulled it through multiple revisions, but the last time I pulled it out of the drawer was two months after Harvey Weinstein's crimes became public. Okay. Yeah. And I asked myself, oh, well, do I really want to enter into this story at this particular mm-hmm. moment? Mm-hmm. Well, here goes. You know, but the Me Too moment did teach me things about, uh, well, about this book and what needed to happen with it. I knew early on that Lucy's story depended on her finding someone to hear her story. But after Me Too, I understood how everybody else's uh, journey also depends on that happening. Yeah, and so she has a mother. Her mother lives in a trailer in the rural part of the setting of your book. Mm -hmm. Uh, She doesn't like being with her mother she doesn't want to be with her mother but uh, 
And in this scene, that the trauma that I alluded to of Lucy, her mama is a big part of that. Right. Yeah. Her mother's boyfriend. And this place that she goes back to scene of the crime is the scene of the crime. Yeah. So pick it up there. I was kind of surprised to see you today, her mama said, popping the frozen meal into the microwave. Why is that? I said I would come, didn't I? Well, Mama said, that last time you left here in such a huff. Lucy looked at the shag carpet and felt the anger buzz through her. What do you want, Mama? I just wanted to see my little girl. Damn, you always was so touchy. Everything I say pisses you off. On the wall above the TV, Lucy saw herself evolve from an infant with chubby arms and legs to an awkward teenager sporting a mohawk and heavy mascara. Then, older, her first tattoo on her shin bone. Cursed? God, she hated that tattoo and the artist who had done it. She was still trying to talk Nile into covering it up, but he said that would only make it worse. Across the wall... Inside the cheapest frames money could buy, there must have been 50 of them. The entire family smiled out at her. Mama and Papa Wilson, all her cousins, aunts and uncles. But it was her own face that dominated the room. Mama had always said, rich people got their money, their status. Poor people don't got nothing but each other. What bullshit. At Bill's mama's house, Lucy had seen a few family photos, one portrait of Bill, one of his brother Wesley, tastefully placed on furniture, but nothing like this fireworks display, overcompensation. When her eye caught the studio portrait, the one with mama's boyfriend in it, Lucy and her mohawk frowning there between the two of them, one happy family, the only thing she could do was point. What is that? Mama puffed on her cigarette, letting her eyes play across the wall. Where? Why would you still have that picture? Her mama's jaw clenched as she stared at the wall. Lucy stood up, walked to the collage of photos, and reached high and lifted the frame from its nail. She carried it to the kitchen and opened the cupboard under the sink tossed it into the trash. All right, George, this is a particularly powerful scene. Um, Lucy can't seem to find anyone that will listen. Her mother, yeah. not only does she not listen, but she's still displaying a portrait that hurts, yeah. hurts Lucy mm-hmm. every time she sees it. So, um, And then her mother is asking Lucy for money, too. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So these two worlds that you've... Uh, actually, it's probably three worlds mm-hmm. because the the other world in the rural area, the one that's not Lucy's mother, but who's uh, Bill's family, they they could they could have been just you know walking out of church and they're tending the field and everything's that's right yeah yeah so, Bill and Wesley's family very different from Lucy's yeah, background yeah. and in fact I I think what Inter- what Lucy is interested in Bill and his brother Wesley because of their family mm. and because of their mother. She sees in their mother the kind of nurture she never had, and she, she craves that. 
All right. Well, let's uh, let's jump to the writing life just a little bit yeah. here. All right. So, you're a southerner now who lives in New York. That's uh, right. Do you consider yourself a southern writer? And if so, what does that mean? Absolutely. <laughs> what, uh, what, what does that mean? And a North Carolina writer too. <laughs> yeah. And I get very upset when anyone suggests otherwise. Yeah. Um, you mean yeah. you ha- you haven't been corrupted by the? <laughs> well, I mean that I I write about the okay. South and I write about North Carolina. Um, I think I've written one short story that was set in upstate New York. Hmm. And then I decided, wait a minute, I don't write about New York. Uh, I'm going to change the setting to the South. And a friend of mine, Del Ray Phillips, said, no, that wasn't set in the South. That was in upstate New York. So I guess setting does show through. Yeah. yeah. And you teach now. You teach in college. And, That's right. And uh, you're writing this uh, sort of edgy fiction here. Does that uh, endear you to your students? Are they surprised that a guy, you know, can uh, – can get into um, this edgy world. You know, I don't know if any of them have read the Skin Artist okay. yet, so I'll be curious. <laughs> you haven't done like some professors and assigned your own book for, for no, a no, no. Well, I was on sabbatical in the fall when I was okay. touring the novels, so you yeah. know, maybe this semester I'll maybe you can I have put, to confront you, that. You put that in the syllabus for next semester. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, maybe not. Yeah. Uh, so, talking about students for just a second, uh, you enjoy teaching uh, yeah. very much. Yeah, and and so what? What do you? If, you know, the uh, first day of class. Um, you're talking to students about writing. Yeah. What do you tell them? Well, what I told my students this semester, the first day of class, is I want you to feel a little bit of what Toni Morrison feels when she writes or what Lee Smith or Clyde Edgerton feel when they write um, or Fred Chappell, some of my favorite North Carolina writers, uh, or Randall Keenan. Uh, I've read a lot of North Carolina writers and, um, and what do you what do you mean? You want them to feel? I want, you know, I see the teaching of creative writing in the larger context of teaching the fine arts. I used to, when I was younger, play the saxophone, and I wasn't that good, but I was good enough to play with a little rock and roll band for a yeah, while. Yeah. And play you along with some you, jazz you want, records. You wanted, you wanted to be in that Belmont Playboy. Well, that's right. And <laughs> you know, I felt like um, I feel a little bit of what Coltrane feels every time he takes the stage. Not to compare myself to Coltrane, but I'm doing the same activity, and I want my writing students to feel the act of writing. That just that wonderful feeling of creation. We're the only species that tells stories, that writes. So to be fully human, I think this is a way to do it. I think all of the arts are a way to be more fully human. Mm. And what do you enjoy uh, most when you get to the end of one of these classes, these courses, uh, when you're wrapping things up with the students? Well, um, I enjoy the students feeling of accomplishment they're looking back and seeing that they've written a couple of stories i also enjoy when students are able to take seriously the job of revision because any writer is a rewriter yeah and 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 that's a good point revision is something that uh i don't think you know if you haven't written a book and you haven't gone through that revision Mm -hmm. process I think sometimes readers are interested to learn how many revisions actually happen right. to make a book a book. Yeah, right? yeah. So how many revisions were, were there in The Skin Artist? Oh, my goodness. 
know, 30, yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah. And see, that, and that's, you know, that's a lot of work. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now, you're doing some of those revisions, I assume, on your own before it ever sees your that's editor. Right. And then you might have a beta reader that gives you some thoughts. And then you, what do you find most helpful about the revising process? Well, it is wonderful to have talented readers give you feedback. There are some things you can see and do on your own, but there are many things you can't. You, you need other readers. Um, and I loved the editorial process with the skin artist. Uh, SFK Press was wonderful to work with. I uh, worked with... Um, as a developmental editor, Pinckney Benedict, who's a writer I've admired and been reading for 20 years. And I thought, oh my goodness, I get to work with Pinckney Benedict? How cool is this? So he gave me a very thorough reader's map, as he called it. And every night I would read one of Pinckney's stories and tell myself, anybody who writes this good, I'm going to do <laughs> to the best of my ability whatever he says. Right. Uh, and then you know, there were a couple of other editors that helped me bring it on home. So in that uh, revision process, sometimes it's not just, you know, fixing things or putting them in order, but do you find that you also come up with ideas? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You, That's you, the fun of revision. You know, yeah. you get to re-enter the world of the story imaginatively. Mm. Yeah, later, you know, toward the end of the process, it's copy editing, sure. it's fixing things, but right. early on it's just wading back into that world and building, keep continuing to build. And tying in a little bit with the theme of your title here, The Skin Artist, a writer, particularly during the revision stage, has to have thick skin, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Talk about that. What do you tell your students about how to receive feedback? I tell them what they're going to feel. They're going to feel anger at anyone who doesn't get down on hands and knees and <laughs> worship their manuscript. Exactly. But once they get over that anger, then yeah. maybe they can see yeah. that there's some good ideas there. Yeah, I worked with a good editor, uh, Nora Gaskin, on my books, and when she would edit, um, I'd let it sit for a couple of days before yeah. I'd come back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You'd read it through the first time, you say, and then you come back up and say, yeah, yeah, she's probably right. That's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> she, right. She's probably right. I talk about routine a second. Do you, you know you're teaching full time? So when you're writing, do you have a routine for your writing? Um, there are semesters when I'm able to get more work done than others. I'm hoping this is going to be one of those. Um, and if I can write in the morning, that's the best time for me. When I was a younger man, I'd stay up all night long writing, but I, I can't do that anymore. Right, what about this question? You're, somebody asked you about uh, writing a book, and your answer is you should only write a book if you are prepared to hmm. be proud of the finished product, I would say. And that for me with this book was a big struggle is getting it to the point where I thought, yeah, I'm happy with the results. Hmm. And um, you've had a lot of experience now writing short stories, writing right. this novel. You've written a lot, and you've taught a lot, and you've that's spanned a period of time. What would you tell your younger writing self something that might help that younger writer based mm. upon what you've learned since that time, if it was a couple of things? Um, 
It's all going to be okay. <laughs> just keep at it. <laughs> just keep trying. <laughs> just keep just, at just it. Just keep writing. Yeah. yeah. Just mm-hmm. keep writing. Yeah, that's good. Um, finding your voice, did that take you a while? I mean, you've got a certain voice that comes through in this book here. You know, the- I think the voice was there early on, but it was raw and it it needed to be refined. And just practice has helped me do that. Mm. Now, you write about uh, outcasts from society. Um, I assume you're not hanging out in strip joints and tattoo parlors. So how do you get close to close enough to these characters you like to write about to be able to make it real? Well, I think all of the point of view characters I write, I'm attracted to people who are at a low point. They are really struggling to crawl out of some dark place. And, um, and I think that lets a reader exercise empathy, you know, that it challenges a reader to go to this dark place with a character. And so I guess as a writer, I'm challenged to do that as well. Mm. I did this in the first couple of seasons. Is it some true-false? Let's play this game. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I often surprise myself with where my writing takes me. True or false? True. True. And how so? Um, well, that's the fun of writing, you know, mm. not knowing where you're going to go. Mm. I tell my students writing is a process of discovery, whether, whether it's creative writing or writing a, you know, an argument-driven paper. If you know where you're going to go when you set pen to paper, it's going to be pretty dull. Yeah, I did something last night. I don't know if it'll ever get published. We're recording this now in January, but it's for a nonfiction class. And I sat down and I wrote down all the titles of all the stories and poems and books of authors in my first two seasons. Mm-hmm. There were 95 of them. Wow. And then I, and then I, That's and, tremendous. And I said, okay, now use those to tell a story. And so I worked it into like a 1,300-word <laughs> <laughs> essay. Now, I don't know whether it'll be published, but I had a lot, <laughs> I want to read that. I had yeah. a lot of fun doing that. <laughs> you know, it's a lot of fun doing that. So, uh, all right, so rejection doesn't bother me, true or false? Oh, it always bothers me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you, do you read your reviews online or not? Oh, I read everything that comes my way. Well, sure. they say that's not good for your health, you know, to, to read all those reviews, right? You know, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, publishing is a journey, not a sprint. True or false? True. True. It takes a while. Yeah. Uh, and I will say, you know, from the end of the journey, you look back and you think, oh, my goodness, I'm glad I had the time to get it right. At least that's how I feel, you know, mm-hmm. that I'm glad I didn't publish this book or manage to before it was ready. Plot may drive the story, but the characters keep the pages turning. Yes, absolutely. You know, I often thought, you know, when I was reading as a younger reader and even as a writer that it was all about, you know, a plot, a story, whatever. Mm -hmm. But if you can't really relate to the characters... Well, the plot should grow out of the characters. There you go. Mm-hmm. There you go. Talk about that. Yeah. Well, uh, if the plot is imposed on the characters, the whole thing is going to feel mechanical. Uh, I mean, the, the plot is the characters working through their trauma, their challenges to hopefully seek redemption or mm. transcendence to get to a better place. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so what were your characters searching for in this book? And did they find it? I think Bill and probably his brother Wesley, too, are, are both uh, seeking intimacy. A lot of the characters are. 
I mean, it's a love story in its larger sense, and I think a lot of the characters are, are seeking that. And they're seeking intimacy and friendship. Bill and his um, uh, college buddy, Kent, that he reconnects with, there's a kind of real closeness about their friendship that helps them. Bill's reconnecting with family uh, is, you know, he's rediscovering a kind of intimacy that he had lost. So I think that's what most of the characters are looking for. But you never know exactly where Bill's going to end up in this book. That's right. And I don't want to say because <laughs> exactly. that's, that's a big suspense. Yeah, yeah. And so Lucy, she's searching for? Lucy is searching for autonomy. She's searching for a life where she's in control of her life rather than at the mercy of all these forces of the male gaze of money of um all of these forces the the past trauma that she has suffered uh that are driving her she's she's trying to get in the driver's seat Mm -hmm. all right one last writing life question um fill in the blank i write because just like all your other guests say, Landis, because I have to. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. also, you know, writing is an addiction. This book's about yeah. addiction, but <laughs> writing is a healthy addiction. Yeah, uh, so. yeah it is. And, and I have seen that. Um, you sit down and you look up, what, four hours later? That's right. You're, you're, and you're buzzing. <laughs> you feel so good. Yeah. 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 And, and, and you great. want more of that, so you go yeah. back. Yeah. All right, George, we've got a final read here. It's pretty short, but uh, it kind of feeds into this idea of addiction. Can you set this up for us? Sure. Uh, So a reader might wonder, why do these characters cover themselves in tattoos? Why do they keep going back for more? And this passage hopefully answers that question. When Bill left Way of the Flesh, His ass burned with every step he took, his own private stigmata. But there was a comfort in that pain. In the hands of the right artist, there was an addictive comfort in the ritual of desecrating the flesh. Like the most intimate sex, like religion when it really moved him, like a dangerous family dinner, feeling ink injected beneath the skin let him know at least for the moment that he was alive and vulnerable he left the parlor with a secret beneath his clothes the barrier of skin had just been broken he passed the people on the street and suspected that he might have things in common with them all right, George, you're leaving us hanging there, which is a good place good. because we're going to, you know, have to uh, go pick up the book and read there it. There uh, Yeah, so, hey, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you, Landis. It's been a lot it's of been fun. been great. been a lot of fun having you back down here in the South. Thank yeah. you so yeah. much. Great to yeah. be here. And your information is going to be on the website. Uh, on our show notes, we're going to have links, uh, photographs, and other information about how to connect. Oh, there's also this other thing you do. You've got this... Uh, uh, video page. T- tell us about that. The- That's right. So, I mean, you can find me on Facebook or Instagram, but my website, georgehovis.net, features videos about the skin artist, some other writings, and other information. And we'll try to link to those uh, videos as well in the show notes. So, oh, great. So, yeah, thanks. Thanks, Landis. Well, that's it for today. 
Another fine author giving voice to their written words. Next Tuesday, we'll have another in-depth episode with readings and conversations about the written word and the writing life of a local or regional author. But before then, be on the lookout for another Under the Covers episode where we do much the same thing we do here, but quicker, and sometimes away from the studio. Because there are just too many good authors. And not enough time. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And you can keep up with news about the show by joining our email list and engaging with us on social media. We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join our email list, we'll give you a free ebook written by me. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Until next week, I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. <laughs>